Hello, and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover DIY living, homegrown vegetables, chickens, herbs, hooch, bicycles, cultural alchemy, and common sense. On this first episode, we'll discuss a few of the issues that came up in the past few weeks on the blog, including direct seeding versus transplants, Josie Baker's new bread book, and gluten intolerance. We'll also answer a reader question. I'm Eric Knudsen, a.k.a. Mr. Homegrown, and I'm joined today by my co-conspirator, Kelly Coyne, a.k.a. Mrs. Homegrown. So how are you feeling about this? (laughs) I've been kidnapped and dragged into Eric's den. Dragged into podcasting land. Into uh, what he calls his world control headquarters. Exactly. Where he set up his his podcasting um, empire here. I guess I should say... uh, on this, our inaugural uh, podcast, that Eric loves a microphone. He loves a camera. He's a ham. He's a Leo. So um, he's very excited about this. You can hear that in his voice. I like a piece of paper a lot. I like to arrange words um, slowly. Um, I'm sort of a dominatrix of words. Uh, talking live is is not as easy for me as it is for Eric, who's really good with a sound bite and a quip. But I am here, um, if nothing else, to keep him in line. So um, here we go. Keep me on track. I'll keep you on track. Keep you, yeah. To keep me from going full Marshall McLuhan. (laughs) We have to keep the thought styling to a minimum. So how would you describe the studio we're in right now? Does it look like a James Bond villain's lair, sort of? In your sweet fantasies, my dear, it does look like a James <laughs> Bond villain. It looks like our guest bedroom slash your office and um, your fencing gear is laying around everywhere mixed with my camping gear and the vacuums in here along with us, sort of like R2-D2, a little companion. Um, but we will, um, we do have a uh, decorating scheme, so we will fix it this will place eventually up. will look like a James Bond villain lair. We will have two, two swivel chairs and a Persian cat in here. Within the, the month. command center, mm-hmm. maybe some blink- simple blinky lights empire, on the wall, as it were, showing your em- your the spread of your empire across the world and the time across the world. Mm. Anyways, we're off we're off topic a bit here. So uh, one of the one of the things on the blog this week was uh, direct seeding versus transplanting vegetables, and um, I kind of put that on the blog because. Man, the vegetable garden is not looking so good right now. We are so far behind. This uh, is like hashtag homestead failure, homestead absolutely. fail. Yeah. Hashtag skunks. Hashtag skunks. Hashtag heat wave. But normally, you know, in the past few years, I've transplanted, kind of followed the John Javins method, where you uh, grow things in flats and you tediously transplant every single vegetable out into the vegetable garden. And the funny thing is, it kind of mostly worked pretty well. And I don't know why I abandoned that. I mean, one of the things was we were, we have this skunk in the backyard, and we were thinking, like, I could fix the fence so that the skunk wouldn't come over it. And the funny thing is, I haven't noticed. Have you noticed any skunk? It seems uh, like the skunk has left maybe the premises. I don't know. Um, I Actually, I'll, I'll take some of the blame here, because I begged Eric... Uh, uh, at a certain point, to stop trying to capture the skunk when we entered into skunk mating season. Uh, we worried that it was a female skunk. We knew it was living under our shed in the backyard, and I was worried that she was going to have babies, and um, and then we would capture her. Did you and, name her? 
no, I didn't let my fantasies about the skunk go too far, but I was worried that we would we would um, kick a mama. Uh, skunk out in the cold and then let her baby starve to death underneath the shed, which not only uh, is bad karma, but smells bad. So I said, please stop. You know, we have to put netting up around the beds this year to try to keep the skunks out. Uh, So that took extra time. So we'd already been late planting because of the skunk war. And then there was some delay while we fussed with the netting and the new, the new beds have strange structures over them when we had to figure all that out. Then, um, Eric had to lay down the drip system and more time goes by. And then, uh, then you decided for whatever reason that you wanted to do direct. So this year from a horticultural perspective, that it was better to sow the seeds directly because then you're not disturbing the roots each time you transplant. them. Yes. There's people who believe that direct sowing creates stronger seedlings. I mean, there's certain things that we've always direct sown like lettuces. You can't transplant. You know, well, John Javins transplants, even lettuces. He's like, he's like the seedling whisperer, but like, well, certainly not root vegetables. Like carrots have to be direct sown or they get all malformed. I think he even transplants those, but I know like uh, poppies don't like to be transplanted. There's, there's plants that you just can't, but. And then of course we're in Los Angeles where it's, um, we don't have to worry about freezes here so much. So we can, we don't have to, in other words, I'm trying to say we don't have to start things indoors and put them outside later so we don't have that problem so we can basically direct so almost everything i mean sometimes the tomatoes in order to get an early start on them it, you can have a cool spring and then you have to we have a little we actually have a little tiny greenhouse thingy um uh, what do you call a cold frame to start the tomatoes and i didn't even set up this year well it's because we had no winter this year it's never been cold basically it hasn't been cold, so we have no excuse then for not having started the vegetables sooner and direct sown or trans, you know. Well, no, we had the skunk thing. excuse. There was a the huge skunk, skunk war going on earlier. I mean, the, the yard was just, it was full of holes. It looked like a battlefield out there. Um, I don't know. But anyway, so here we are. It's uh, May. We have nothing growing. We're shopping at Super King. We are shopping at Super King for this our vegetables. This is... This is embarrassing, but this is this is life. Uh, but I think I came to the conclusion that while for horticultural reasons it might be better to sow directly, just for my own brain and our own sort of behavior around this household, that the transplant thing, with the exception of lettuce, is kind of the way to go. And carrots. Don't forget the carrots. The carrots. And the, the radishes carrots. and parsnips. Definitely. Uh, and your root vegetables. Definitely the tomatoes. But you know what we didn't finish saying was that after the skunk wars, after doing all the infrastructure, the netting and whatnot, then Eric Eric finally direct sowed. And then we had this hellacious heat wave, just insane heat wave whipped across LA. And it lasted a full week of temperatures over 90, three days at 103 in our backyard in the shade. Uh, Santa Ana winds, which are drying and hot, like having a blow dryer blowing in your face all day, blowing across our yard. And so 
I fear that the seeds didn't survive that. I, I nothing sprouting out there. Is anything new sprouted out there? I didn't look. To, to get back to that heat wave, I want to point out it was a day in Los Angeles in which there was a nearby oil pipeline spill that flooded a strip club, and it was over 100 degrees, <laughs> and the smoke from San Diego drifted up and filled the base. It felt like being in a barbecue here. <laughs> a barbecue? It felt like being in hell. <laughs> I couldn't breathe that day. It was a terrible, terrible day. That was like the, the last and the worst of that of that week. I thought you were going to move to Portland. I, I, I always want to move north. But that was a, I, I was, I was hacking. I felt like I had asthma and I've never had asthma in my life. My chest hurt. And it was so hot. And I think all the little seeds died. Your conclusions here, then? Our, my conclusion transplanting. is that though it's more natural to um, throw the seeds, and we have thrown them successfully in the past, um, I think with the vicissitudes of life, um, whether those be digging skunks or blistering heat waves or uh, uh, your neighbor's cat or whatever, uh, you're going to lose your seedlings. And if you have flats of seedlings started um, and in reserve, so which is what, you know, um, uh, the great Javens wants you to have is like flats of seedlings ready to go. So then, you know, not only do you not lose, lose uh, plants to non-germination, you know, you know, you've got a plant and you know, it's, you know, you know, it's going in. It's also big enough to withstand bugs and some some environmental stress, and if you do lose it because of um, some disaster, if you have extra seedlings started, you can just simply pop those in, so you don't lose much ground. Here we are now with our seeds not sprouting; we have no seedlings in reserve, and I think we're going to be forced to go to the farmers market and get starts um, from a guy there who sells good stuff. Uh, and just sort of have a have a Potemkin garden this summer. For- well, more than a Potemkin garden, let's hope. <laughs> well, it just seems wrong to like, like oh, let's just go get this stuff already half grown and stick it in there, you know. Well, you don't get the variety you get when you grow from your own seeds. No, so you we're don't. gonna miss all those nice We uh, had all these Frankie, Frankie seeds that, Yeah, uh, we had a lot of nice stuff picked out. And now oh, uh, we'll just have basics. But I'd be happy at this point if we could just get some tomatoes going. And at this point, when, when are they going to be ready for harvest? Like September? Oh, Lord. Um, it's time to go out in the garden and all, all of our parsley all has gone to um, seed because it's too hot. I need to pull all the parsley and replace it with basil. And so in a, a little while, perhaps we can you know, put together some sort of Italian meal with, with tomatoes and basil. And, and then, I don't know, call it done. I guess we have to remember that in L.A., summer is in some ways our winter. In other climates, snow climates, people get the winter off. And we never actually have a season off for gardening here, which is a blessing and a curse. I think it's sometimes it's best just to consider the summer the winter because it's harder to grow in the summer. You know, note uh, above uh, Santa Ana winds, 103-degree temperatures, drought. Oil spills, oil flooding spills, strip clubs. Fire. We sound like the presidents of an excuse Gardening is here. hard. Gardening is really hard. Stuff comes up. What are you going to do? I don't know. So we're going to we'll plan our things. We move on. Josie Baker Bread. A uh, new cookbook I was very excited about to get my hands on, and uh, I've been baking out of it now for a few weeks, and I've got to say, this might be the bread book that I've been looking for. I, I said in the blog post, it's kind of like a, um, 
a bread class in a book because it starts you out with a very simple uh, white bread uh, with yeast, and then it goes on to a uh, sourdough recipe and then gets into whole wheat breads, which I'm a big believer in. And there's even the infamous uh, brown butter chocolate chip cookie in there that I learned from Steve Rudisell. I said in the blog post, I thought that maybe our phone had been tapped and Josie Baker had been, you know, intercepting all the things that we have learned about teaching bread in the past few years. Overall, I, you know, what, what do you say? I've been cooking out of the cookbook. What do you think of the breads I've been the, making? The out breads of it? you've been making out of it are good. Yeah, it's a good book. I'm very happy we have it. I, we should we should give a shout out to the publisher who sent it to us for free. It's Chronicle Book. Full disclosure here. I yeah. I wrote and said, hey. Hey, Eric is the is is one of the founders of the Los Angeles Bread Bakers. You know, will you send us a book? And they did, which is one of the perks of blogging. This this book we would definitely have bought. I had seen it um, before I asked for it, and I loved it from the moment I saw it. It's just really well organized and well written. I like uh, I like uh, the way Josie Baker's voice comes through. He's very the bro speak. The bro speak. He's very broish, but it's very funny. And sometimes he goes off on little tangents that are hysterical, like the pemmican tangent, which I'll just leave for you guys to discover yourself. Um, Eric's been making a Kamet bread. Um, yeah, the Kamet bread is really amazing. Kamet, um, when you grind it, it the, the flour is a, sort of a bright yellow. Uh, and it actually, when you bake it, it actually gets even more yellow. Do you so want to really tell them what Kamet is? Kamet is a, uh, uh, a variety of wheat from the Middle East. Uh, the story I heard was that a, an American Air Force officer found it in a market, brought it back, uh, and there's a gentleman in the uh, upper Midwest who grows it, who has the, who's actually trademarked the name Kamet. Um, and in order to grow it, you have to grow it organically. Um, you get the seed from him, I believe. Anyways, it's, it's a long story, but it's, a, uh, it's an ancient grain. Um, and You just um, got it at Whole Foods, right? I just got it in the bulk bins at Whole Foods, uh, yes. exactly. Uh, we should say I also own, I bought a mill for myself last Christmas, uh, a really nice Como mill, an Austrian mill, uh, and we grind our own wheat here. Uh, but I think you can find Comet Flour, maybe Bob's Red Mill or someone probably has it uh, as well. Um, but I interrupted but you. It's yellow. It's it's yellow, and it has a really nice flavor. I, I don't think people know that, but that uh, these other varieties of wheats have different flavors to them. And none of them taste like hippie whole wheat. No offense, hippies. But, you know, there's that kind of... Mm, that kind of cardboard taste that I've always associated with whole wheat loaves. I mean, that's why before the advent of the mill or our access to good uh, ground flours, when we just were using normal, um, you know, store-bought whole wheat flour, um, it never the loaves never tasted good if we if the percentage was over 50-50 white and whole wheat. But since Eric's been experimenting with all of these um, heritage grains, and and then especially since he started grinding it himself, it, it's a whole different world. It doesn't taste like cardboard. The Kamet bread is is quite dense, but it doesn't taste bad for all that. It's a it's it's a it's a pleasing kind of denseness, and it's a nice flavor. And the same with Sonora wheat. Sonora wheat, you would never know you were eating a hundred percent whole wheat loaf when you're eating a Sonora wheat loaf. So I'm very excited about this. 
I don't want people to think, though, that they have to get fancy wheats, though, because you could make your own whole wheat breads from supermarket whole wheat flour that would be very, very good. Just grinding it yourself? Uh, yeah, you don't even have to grind it yourself, actually. And, and the Josie Baker book would be a good guide to any kind of whole wheat baking. Uh, the thing I don't think people know is what's in the quote-unquote whole wheat bread at the supermarket and uh, yesterday, I decided to take a look at some of the ingredients of the whole wheat breads. Uh, keep in mind, I, you know, I've been baking uh, most of our bread now for 20 years almost um, in this household. So we don't buy a lot. And occasionally, we'll buy a loaf of bread if I'm too busy to, to bake. But we don't buy a lot of whole wheat bread from the supermarket. Um, I took a look at those breads, and I was really, really shocked by what I saw, which was, you know, yes, they had some whole wheat flour in them, but they also had a lot of white flour, and to my amazement, high fructose corn syrup, and a whole list of other things, dough conditioners and other ingredients I can't even pronounce, as well as vitamins that they toss in because they, you know, they take out a lot of the whole wheat flour and put white flour in. Uh, in short, an incredibly long ingredient list. And when you bake your own whole wheat bread, uh, using a book like Josie Baker Bread, uh, you're just using water, flour, salt. If you're using a sourdough starter, it's literally just that, water, flour, salt. No yeast, nothing else. And when you do that, the flavor of the wheat itself comes forward. And also, you know, the other thing about those supermarket loaves is... I don't like the way they're baked. I don't like the texture of them. Uh, the Josie Baker bread book, uh, you know, he uses a lot of water in the mix because whole wheat flour absorbs a lot of water. That's one of the things you learn when you, when you bake with whole wheat. Um, and you got to bake it longer. And those loaves, again, at the supermarket, geez, they're like gummy, gummy bears. They're not like the bread that you get at home when you learn the techniques in this book and that you know it should be said there's there's not kneading to do it's just you know mixing a little bit of stretch and folding of the dough um you can put the dough in the refrigerator if you're busy and bake it the next day uh these breads are not difficult to make it's one of the things in this household i think that's been the most economically worthwhile the chicken's not so much chicken's expensive mm -hmm. The bread, you know, again, all you have to do, flour, water, not expensive. And you get this much better bread than you get at the supermarket for, for not that much investment in time or money. I mean, especially if you are, uh, if you if you do have a taste for good bread and you don't bake, then you have to buy really expensive loaves if you can find them, depending on where you live. And those loaves, you know, how much does a good loaf of bread at a good bakery go for? Like six, seven? I have, we haven't bought bread for so $10. long. Ten, maybe $10. Maybe we don't $10. know. Yeah. It's very expensive. If it's a decent bakery. You know, and then the supermarket bread's almost inedible. Um, so yeah, we're, I'm spoiled. I know I'm a very, I'm very spoiled with the bread. I'm very grateful to be very spoiled. There's even a uh, gluten-free recipe in Josie Baker bread, which uh, Kelly made called the adventure, adventure bread. bread. Yeah, I actually bestirred myself to make a loaf of bread because I didn't think Eric would ever make it because Eric, you know, likes to work with his sourdough. He has like strict definitions of what bread is, and adventure bread isn't really uh, bread by any means. It, it doesn't have any wheat in it. Doesn't have any leaveners in it. it it's actually a loaf of compressed seeds. 
And apparently Josie Baker um, developed it uh, in response to customers coming into his bakery asking for gluten-free breads. And he knew that he didn't want to try to make bread without gluten because that requires a lot of interventions, I think, with... Um, well, lots of weird ingredients. Weird ingredients. Yeah. yeah, I don't even know what you use. But he didn't, want, he didn't want to go down that route, so he thought he'd try to make... Xanthan gum, of course. Xanthan gum, you know. The main one. He, wanted, he knows what that is. <laughs> he, he wanted to make a snack for them that they would enjoy, but that wasn't, you know, that didn't involve him um, trying to re-engineer bread. So... He made this stuff, and it's and it is. I, when I first saw the picture of it, I thought it looked like a trail mix uh, in loaf form, and I knew immediately that it would, you know, it, it, it spoke to me of camping, which I love to do, and I and uh, that was an adventure. Um, it was. Uh, it's a. It's a. Uh, you make it in a loaf pan. It's not hard to make. It's easier than making cookies. You just really dump all. You have the hardest thing you have to do is toast some nuts, uh, and then you dump. Uh, everything into a bowl, which and everything is just several different kinds of seeds and nuts and a bunch of oats, some water, like a little bit of maple syrup, I think. I don't even know if there's oil in there. I can't there, remember. Well, was the, oil? The, the, the magical psyllium seed husk. Oh, yeah, that was the one thing course. that threw us. We had everything actually already in our cupboards that he, that he needed because we have a lot of dried goods. But, um, but the one thing uh, that we didn't have was psyllium seed husk, uh, which... Uh, we found in the uh, dietary supplement section of, of Whole Foods. Um, it's used to, to, as a digestive aid. It's a... Uh is it Metamucil? Well, yeah, it is Metamucil, essentially. Without but the flavor. It's, yeah, but it's a little confusing because there's also psyllium seeds. Ground psyllium seed is a laxative, and that's often flavored. And I'm wondering if that is more like Metamucil. I don't know, but if you go looking for it, make sure you get the husks and not the seeds. But the interesting thing about that bread is that the I guess it was a psyllium seed husk or maybe the, the chia, chia there's chia seeds, seeds in that it gave it the texture of bread kind it, of miraculously and I think the oats too oats are mucilaginous to some extent so the all, all these kind of slightly gooky things made made it hold together as a loaf I really liked it um, it's it's best. Uh, sliced thin and toasted, which Baker says in his book, and he's entirely right because nuts are good toasted. I took, I did take it camping with me the weekend after I made it, and it was good. It wasn't as good as it is toasted, but it was very, very hearty. And if you're looking for something um, filling and nutritious and somewhat indestructible to take with you on adventures, I think it's a good one. I think it's well named as adventure bread. You even uh, made a superfluous uh, Lord of the Rings reference. It your, wasn't uh, superfluous. It was quite relevant. <laughs> you just don't know. I was talking about it as Limbus spread. Eric doesn't read fantasy novels. Even though I made a Lord of the Rings reference for Yeah, some I reason. forgot. You called the book one... You called the, the book review was one, one book to rule them all. That's just because you saw the movie. And then we had, a, <laughs> we had a reader write in to tell us that she had done a blog post about the book and had also made a Lord of the Rings reference. I think the same one you had made, uh, well, it coincidentally. Lem- the, 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 the parallel with Lembus bread is striking because it does fill you up. Lembus bread is the elvish bread that the travelers uh, you know, use in Middle Earth because it only takes a little bit to make a meal. And the very first slice I had of, of, of the adventure bread, I was like, oh my God, this is filling. I'm done. I'm just done. After like half a slice, I'm like, I'm full. Uh, and I looked up, uh, I looked up its, uh, well, I actually had to do math. I, I actually went to a calorie counter uh, website and took all the ingredients in the recipe and calculated the 
calories uh, for all the ingredients in a loaf and then estimated the calories per slice. And I figure it's like about 300 calories for slice. So it is not a light snack. It's like a, a demi meal. Like you have a slice of that with something on it and, and yeah, you're pretty much good to go. And it is. So it's Lumbus bread. Of course, I have another theory about the Lord of the Rings thing, which is that uh, Josie Baker is in Northern California, which Joss down here in Southern California seems like the Shire versus what's the land of the orcs down here? Mordor. Mordor, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we're, we're Mordor. It is Mordor because it's hot and smoky yeah. and toxic and Except that instead of orcs wandering around, we have we have wannabe actors, um, young, beautiful wannabe actors, Don't staggering around. Actors. We have many friends who are actors. <laughs> well, it's just it's weird. There's there's a there's a lot of attractive people staggering around instead of orcs, but they're staggering around in the same sort of toxic environment as Mordor, and the Great Eye is watching us all. Indeed. Well, speaking of uh, gluten free bread. Um, I did a blog post about a study that came out recently looking at uh, what was, to be very specific, non-celiac gluten intolerance. In other words, people who don't have celiac disease who were self-diagnosing as having a gluten intolerance. Um, And the study was actually done by a... Uh, researcher who had looked into this problem uh, and it kind of jump-started people self-diagnosing because, um, you know, his original study seemed to indicate there might be some kind of um, gluten sensitivities outside of people, people with celiac disease. So he went back and did a much more thorough study in which he... uh, had a group of, uh, I think it was 30-some-odd people, uh, controlled every single meal. So they made the meals for them, and they analyzed all the urine and feces. Now, there's a job for a grad student, right? More than likely. At any rate, it was a very, very carefully managed study. Uh, And what he found was, um, and this has actually been slightly distorted in some of the press uh, accounts I've seen of it. He found essentially two things. One is that uh, there's something going on. So there is some sort of sensitivity uh, outside of celiac disease, Um, but it's not related to gluten. It could be related to something else within wheat that we don't know about. And that's, that's what I've seen the press right now is saying, oh, it's these people, uh, you know, it's not gluten, but they're not realizing that it could, there could be some substance in the wheat that's causing a problem, too. And, and that's not known. And there are other researchers that are looking at that right now. Maybe it's modern wheat, so maybe ancient wheat's better. Maybe the way we bake the bread has something to do with it. Uh, those are two theories. Maybe sourdough bread is better uh, for you. But the other thing that he found... Uh, was something called the nocebo effect. Uh, And that is, uh, it's like the placebo effect, but it's a negative side of the placebo effect. So in other words, if I tell you you're going to get sick, if you take this sugar pill, you're going to get sick. You're going to get sick. You're really going to get sick. It's not a, uh, you know, yes, it's in your mind, but there's an actual physical component to it. All human beings are highly suggestible, uh, and that's what the nocebo effect is about. And that's one of the things that was really interesting about the study that I didn't see covered so much in the press. Kelly, any uh, 
Any thoughts on it? Mm, this is your own like uh, anthill to step into. I uh, I was a little worried about that post because uh, people feel strongly about what it, what they experience, and so if somebody's discovered that for whatever reason they feel better if they cut gluten, uh, you know they don't necessarily want to hear uh, our thought stylings on it. But I don't know. It is a, the nocebo thing is is fascinating. I uh, want to be abundantly clear. I want to repeat it again. Celiac disease is real. It affects um, slightly less than 1% of the population. There's been studies about that. That actually makes it, if not the most, one of the most common food allergies. And we're not talking about people with celiac disease here. There definitely is gluten intolerance among celiac uh, people who have celiac disease. This is another, this is another, another group of people the non-celiac, self-diagnosed, gluten intolerant that we're, we're speaking about. And so, I guess, and also to be clear that it means they are actually suffering, but it's just not the gluten that's making them suffer, correct? It's not the gluten. It may be something in, else in, in the wheat. bread, yeah. Um, um, and it's definitely this nocebo effect, which is a very powerful thing. And actually... Something that really interests me, you know, the uh, not so much the nocebo effect, because that's negative, but the placebo effect is something I think we could actually harness uh, for a lot of good. In some ways, I think um, biodynamics is an example of the placebo effect. It's like human intention on the land saying, you know, this is this significant, meaningful ritual that we're going to do. Uh, and what goes on in our minds has definite physical implications in the real world. Uh, and it's something that, you know, science right now is just kind of grappling with this and is a little bit afraid of it because it's it's outside well, of a kind of materialist view of the world. Well, it would play havoc with the scientific method, wouldn't it? To some extent, but it's also, I mean, it's also being recognized. There was a study recently that showed that people who told, who were told they were given a placebo, still it had an effect on them, even though they knew it was a placebo. Uh, and it means to me that the kinds of stories we tell to ourselves are important. Uh, the way we think is important that thing where we change ourselves to change the world. And that's the, that's the positive side of, of this, um, this effect and something that rather than, rather than treat as an inconvenience in a study, it's something we need to look at directly uh, and, and learn how to, to harness because right now the only people that harness it are advertisers. They're well aware of how you can change people's minds and then, that has an effect on the world. Which is going on with the gluten thing. It's a, it's a kind of a terrible uh, snake-biting-its-own-tail sort of thing. Because I think people, um, I think perhaps some of the discomfort arising around wheat that perhaps manifests in digestive difficulties with wheat is, is, a, is like a sort of a suspicion, a systemic a suspicion of our entire industrial food system. Like people know that they're being fed crap basically in so many different ways, no matter what, which, you know, whether you're looking at, at meat, dairy, wheat, you know, GMOs, whatever, uh, there's sort of a, a, a kind of a cloud of anxiety and suspicion floating over our entire food system at this point. And I think that's manifesting 
to some extent in in these this Wheaton tolerance, which is not to say it's in every, all in your head, <laughs> but that 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 is the that is the magic of it. And then the advertisers are more than happy to jump in and start slapping gluten-free labels on everything, like even silly things that never had gluten in them to start with. So you go, you can't go through a supermarket without seeing the phrase gluten-free like about a hundred times during an average trip. And that starts to pound into your head that a negative, like a negative thought bubble about gluten. You know what I mean? So the food marketers are using this uh, this unease with the modern world to sell us yet more crap that, that we don't need and probably not good for us because not again, as good for us as like the, whole wheat would be. A lot of the gluten free products are monkey with bad things and a lot of sugar um, stabilizers, ingredients, xanthan gum, again, whatever that you know, is, whatever. Uh, lots of things. When I was at the uh, big natural food expo convention where. Uh, Food sellers basically market their products to supermarket retailers. It's a massive convention. Uh, every other booth had something gluten-free. Most of it was junk food. You know, like they say, um, you know, uh, is it Michael Pollan says, shop the, shop the perimeter, right? Because, it, you know, the perimeter of the supermarket. Because if you go into any of the, the middle aisles of the supermarket, that's just full of boxes of stuff you don't need junk food or food that's been junkified. Well, I hope to revisit this uh, placebo, nocebo effect in I a wish, um, future podcast. Yes? Well, before you sign off, I just wish there was a better word for placebo, nocebo. I kind of find, like when you were talking about biodynamics and equating that with the placebo effect, even though I knew exactly what you were saying, and I agree, I still felt kickback because placebo has has such negative uh right. like quackery it's like you're like, crazy you're crazy you're taking a sugar pill quacks and, quacks dispense right. sugar pills exactly. you know um, fools take sugar pills and believe what's going on it's not it's so much more subtle and complex than that i wish we had a better word to describe that that um, mind body phenomenon which i think we've ignored uh in western medicine up until now but i think we need to grapple with maybe the uh maybe the word magic <laughs> <laughs> Too broad, that's and I a, still see David Copperfield word. when I... Uh, exactly, you see David Copperfield. <laughs> doesn't work. Intention? Uh, vague. Well, we'll work on that one. All right. And uh, discuss it on a future podcast. Today's question is thanks to a plea I put out uh, two years ago that will tell you how long it's taken us to put this podcast together, uh, unfortunately. Uh, the uh, question is from Ilan... Uh, from Pickfair Village, which is a uh, part of Los Angeles. I should note that Elon, I think, is maybe our very first blog reader. Is he? I think so. Like one of the first people to discover this blog when it was known as Survive LA. So it's an honor to have a question from Elon. Hi, this is Elon from Pickfair Village. Rats get into my compost bin every night. Should I be worried? I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you, sir. Okay, uh, rats in the compost. Rats in the compost. Um, Not surprising. I actually, I want to read uh, one possible solution, which is from the uh, 1961 edition of the LaRousse Gastronomique Encyclopedia. There's an entry uh, on rats, and it says, um, Rodent, which was elevated to the rank of comestible during the siege of Paris in 1870, and which is eaten in certain regions... The flesh of well-nourished rats can be, it seems, of good quality, but sometimes with a musky taste. 
rats nourished in the wine stores of the Gironde were at one time highly esteemed by the coopers, who grilled them after having cleaned out and skinned them on a fire of broken barrels, and seasoned them with a little oil and plenty of shallot. This dish, which was then called Cooper's Entrecote, would be the origin of the Entrecote a la Bordelaise. Excuse my high school French. Um, so, yes, Alon, uh, you could um, possibly eat them. In the Patrick O'Brien novels, um, uh, which are seafaring, set in the seafaring days of the uh, 18th and early 19th century, um, uh, the sailors eat rats on the ships all the time. They're nice, fat, grain-fed rats, uh, and the uh, the younger um, the younger officers scrabble to get rats because they're so desperate for fresh meat. But rats, should you worry about them? Um, I think if you're careful about what you put in your compost and you build a large compost pile and it gets hot, you know, there's there's always a brief period in the compost where it seems like you'll you will just inevitably have a few rats because they'll get in there. But once start things start to break down, um, I've noticed fewer rats. I mean, I you think, could also get cats too, but then you have cats, and that's that's another. <laughs> and then they're just pooping in your compost exactly. pile. I think. I mean, rats. Rats are kind of like people in that they uh, vegetables aren't their first choice of food, so. It depends on what kind of composter you are. Some people just compost uh, garden uh, trimmings and vegetable scraps, and other people like to compost a lot of their food uh, table waste, and that's going to attract rats more than uh, than vegetables, fruits, and, and scraps. Rats just don't care about that stuff. But if you're putting tortillas or leftover oatmeal or that kind of stuff into your compost pile, you're going to bring rats. I would recommend um, keeping a worm bin for those kinds of more tasty foods. Actually, I, I've become more and more convinced um, as the years go by that um, most families should, who are you know, uh, good-hearted people who want to not send their table scraps to the uh, landfill should have a, a worm bin instead of a compost heap because the best compost heaps are built um, all at the same time and get really hot and break down fast. If you have one of those compost heaps that you're just always adding this or that to and have been around for years, those are cool temperature and they tend to hold food and, uh, and then attract vermin. Um, whereas the worm bins don't, or at least they're they're, they're They have a lid so the vermin can't get in. So I would, re- I'd recommend worm bins for most people. We should do a, a whole podcast on worm bins. And in fact, we're, I think we're doing a class on worm, uh, worm, worm composting. Yeah, later uh, in the summer. Later in the summer, we'll, we'll let you all know about that. Um, I know people have tried to cage off their compost piles with hardware cloth. I think it's kind of hard to to get a real rat-proof enclosure because them rats they squeeze themselves. <laughs> if they into can get things. their nose through a hole, their whole body can get through. Apparently, I don't understand that. I don't want to think about it, but that's what I hear. I think, you know, rats are just part of life in Los Angeles. Uh, people don't associate Los Angeles with rats, but they really ought to, you know. Our rats are, are uh, kind of uh, the arboreal rats, and so they're not so much the big, scary street Actually, rats. we have both Well, there. yeah, downtown you see the big ones, but out, out here in the burbs where we live, I, I see most of my rats, um, like, skittering along the telephone wires and up in the trees. They come down to eat our fruit. So for me, again, you know, once the compost starts to break down... Um, 
I again, I, I don't, I you know, I'll see a little evidence of them initially, and then when it's starting to get like soil like, then but you're talking, I don't see them. But see here, I'm talking about the big compost. You're talking pile. about right. the pile that you make all no, at once. No, but you're also right about the vermicomposting. Is you can make a, a more rat-proof uh, vermicompost setup. If it's a real concern for you. And maybe it should be a concern. I mean, we ain't experts. I mean, there's hantavirus, you know, your guests. I mean, if the rats are sitting in your compost pile uh, eating your food, they're probably pooping while they're doing it because that's how they are. And, and so you're going to have rat poop in your compost, which will go into your garden. And I don't know if that's any kind of a threat. I mean, I'm all, I tend to be like, you know, let's just roll with the bacteria and let's all be strong, you know, and, and not to worry about that kind of stuff very much. But if it is a concern, I would say worm composting is the way to go. Or maybe you can start a separate worm poo, or excuse me, rat poo compost pile. Ew. Ooh, yeah. That, that's called the haunta pile. That's a haunta pile. Ew. Uh, well, I guess we didn't really answer that question, did we? Well, kind of. Uh, kind of answered the question. There are, you know, there are no answers, grasshopper. You must seek them yourself. We do know they're edible, though. So, you know, maybe someone has a restaurant concept there for L.A., you know, everything else has been done here, small plates, whatever, whatever. Uh, but maybe it's time for the uh, rat restaurant called simply Rat. <laughs> okay, um, to leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, you can call us at the Root Simple line at 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. Uh, We'd love to hear some more questions and uh, looking forward to uh, maybe talking to some of you uh, live one of these days. Well, is that it? Uh, I think we'll uh, say goodbye until our next podcast. Indeed, indeed. Okay, that wasn't so bad, Eric. You enjoyed that. I I did. That's good. I did. The next time we do this podcast, uh, we'll have this fancy new studio. I want my swivel chair. The swivel chair. Mm -hmm. And the Persian cat. Follow our blog at rootsimple.com. Uh, we are Root Simple on Twitter, and you can friend me on Facebook. I'm Eric Knutzen, E-R-I-K-K-N-U-T-Z-E-N. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Additional music by Roe. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.